Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 134, and it's going to be a massacre. It's also crucial, as you've heard, that we dig deep into the events, because today there's a huge debate about what I'm going to explain next, what documents still exist about what happened, and who owns what when it comes to land in South Africa, specifically land in parts of KwaZulu-Natal. What exactly did Dingaan agree to sell to Piet Ratif? Why did he agree to do this when he had told the missionaries and his own people that he wouldn't part with land at all? It's incredible to think that this one year, 1838, has sparked so much discussion and that people today quote one fact after another to back up their political position on this matter. So, to the story at hand. Piet Ratif had struggled to hold the food trekkers together when he arrived at the main trekker encampment at Doonkorp, back from his visit to Dingon. Piet Ace had arrived from the Haarfeld on the 15th of December 1837, having heard that Ratif's visit to the Amazulu king had gone well, and he brought news of just how decisively Amandabele chief Mzilikatsi had been dealt with. Ace was also reclaiming his leadership role over the food trekkers of Natal, which didn't go down well with Ratif. Gerrit Meritz was his usual refereeing self, interjecting between the two, and Ace agreed on the 19th of December, after four days of argument, to take the oath of the constitution of the United Lagers and support Ratif's vision, but only after he consulted with his folk, his followers. These followers were still on their way down the Drakensberg. It's one of life's ironies that by the time Ace arrived back in Natal on the 24th of January, 1838, He'd completely changed his tune. It was on that date that he dictated a letter to Governor Durban back in Cape Town to the effect that he was now totally against Ratif's sinister designs. And I'm quoting directly. Sinister designs over what? Ratif, it appeared, and as we know was true, was planning to launch an independent state in Natal and ace in what could be called a giant stab in the back wrote to the British governor that he and his folk were actually reaffirming their loyalty to the crown, the English crown. Go check on the facts if you don't believe this. Quite a shock. Here was a man who'd fought off the Amandabeli, having left the Cape seeking independence from the English, reaffirming his loyalty to Durban. But he was doing this mainly to spite Ratif. Furthermore, Ace assured the governor that his followers would employ every means in our power to frustrate them i.e. to frustrate Ratif's plans to rule Natal. Poor old Piet Ratif, when he'd galloped off towards the Drakensberg in the last days of December 1837, as we heard last episode, he believed his position as leader of the Natal Voortrekkers was safe. He had no idea that Ace was going to pull a fast one. Ratif, of course, was heading to the upper reaches of the Caledon Valley on a quest by now, ordered by Dingana to retrieve cattle stolen by the Patlokwa from the Amatlubi. By inference, Dingana wanted Sekonyela, the Batlokwa chief, to pay for his transgressions, and the Boers believed he was testing their somewhat flimsy relationship. Ratif thought that the goodwill that would be generated by returning cattle would lead to Dingana handing over some of that precious land controlled by the Amazulu king. Dingana, meanwhile, was pondering how to get rid of Ratif and the Boers. Can you imagine the moment in time? Smoke and mirrors doesn't begin to describe what was going on. 
Retief, who's commander of 50 burghers, along with between 8 and 15 Zulu men, depending on who you read about this, as well as Thomas Halstead, the translator, reached the Upper Caledon Valley on the 4th of January, 1838. In this time of cunning and sinister actions, Retief and his men were going to be as cunning and sinister as Dingan, as you'll see. Everyone was about to break their word, their bond, their code of honor. No one is squeaky clean in this history business. First, the Voortrekkers. When Retief arrived in the Caledon Valley, the region where the Batlokwa lived, he camped in the garden of James Allison's Wesleyan Mission Station at Mparani. By now, Sikonyela knew that the commander was there, and because Retief had threatened his people, Sikonyela decided to come and parlay with the Boers. Retief lulled the chief into a trap. Just a few months earlier, Retief had been supping with Sikonyela, negotiating a path through his lands for the Voortrekkers to use on their travels, and had offered to pay the Batlokwa chief for this right. Retief ordered the Amazulu travelling with him to dress in western clothes, and then sent a note to Sikonyela to say he wanted to finalise the road rights they had negotiated earlier. At this point, the missionary Allison had no idea what cunning plan Retief was about to initiate, and said he'd act as Sikonyela's adviser. The Batlokwa chief arrived and told Retief that his people were willing to allow them to pass through their lands. As the Boer and Batlokwa leader spoke, from behind came the sound of handcuffs. Yes, back in 1838 folks used handcuffs, and Daniel Besednot had pulled out a pair from his bag and said they were beautiful bracelets, and would Sikonyela like to try them on? This is a true story, just in case you think history is too weird for this kind of stuff. By now, we all should know that truth is stranger than fiction. When Sukunyela, in good faith, held out his wrists to try on these delightful bracelets, Poseidonot snapped them shut and shouted, That is how we secure rogues in our country! All words to that effect. Sukunyela was imprisoned at the Boer camp based in the middle of the mission station. Allison, the missionary, was incensed. Retief had now put him in mortal danger by tricking both the man of God and the Batlokwa chief. First, Anderson tried to instill some sort of shame in Retief for his perfidious act. On the first night, he tried to get Sikonyela released, but Retief refused, saying that the Batlokwa chief had committed a crime by stealing from Dingan and ordered him to send for the cattle he had stolen. Retief had somehow now morphed from the leader of the Voortrekkers into some kind of policeman. If the cattle were not returned, said Retief, Sikonyela would remain in the Boers' captivity for as long as it would take to get them back. A day later, the Batlokwa bought 150 head of cattle, but the Zulu men with Retief pointed out that most of these animals were not originally from Zululand. Eventually, Sikonyela's mother, Mantatisi, relented. Remember, she had been feared in the early 1820s. Her people had roamed the Haarfeld, if you recall. Now she was all washed up, an alcoholic, feeble. She just gave up. It was with 770 head of cattle as well as over 60 horses and 11 muskets, that she bought her son's release. So far, all was going well for the Voortrekker leader, it seemed. Before leaving, and with the Zulu and Dunas standing nearby, being kept updated by Thomas Halstead, the translator, Retief thought it necessary to give Sigonera a tongue-lashing, stressing that he was a bad king and he should ask God for forgiveness. That done, Retief softened his tone and said now they were friends and that the Voortrekkers would be available to help the Batlokwa in future should anyone attack or harass them. The Amazulu took careful note of that. Dingan's enemy was Sikunyela, and usually in these circumstances the chief was captured, 
if he refused to kowtow, and be dragged back to Mgungunlovu for special execution attention. But here he was being set free. With that, the Boers turned and headed back down the escarpment. It appeared at that moment as if the weather gods frowned, for despite it being the height of summer, a freezing wind began to blow and snow fell on the Drakensberg Mountains. The men huddled in their saddles as the horses wound around the Witteberger and crossed the mountains, then descended back down to where the rest of the foretrekkers waited. It was the 11th of January 1838 when they rejoined the wagons. The group was welcomed with some relief, but this was tinged with fear. While Sikonyela was being dealt with, the Durban traders had sent warning that Dingana was going to kill Retief if he returned to Mkunglovu. This warning had been taken seriously by the trekkers in Retief's absence. They had formed up into a lager and beefed up their scouting. By now, the story about how Dingana had chased Chief Silwebana across the Tugela for failing to kill the Boer leader had reached the foot trekkers, as well as Francis Owen, the missionary living next door to Dingan. No smoke without fire, goes the saying. Retief didn't smell the smoke. He wrote a letter to Dingana informing the Zulu king of the successful raid on his enemy, the Batlokwa. Dingana had almost gone into shock about something else. On the 2nd of January, he'd been informed by Owen about Mzilikazi's fate and the utter thrashing he'd received at Egabeni, how his people had fractured and the erstwhile leader of the Kamalo clan had fled across the Limpopo River. Another enemy, dispatched by the Boers. The Zulu had failed to defeat this man, but not the Boers. Retief's letter arrived on the 22nd of January, and Dingana was dismayed to hear that Sikunyela had been captured, then let go. Captured so easily? Damazulu king had been trying for years to defeat the Batlokwa and failed, and here the Boers managed this in a matter of hours. You can imagine how this unnerved a man who was so steeped in African law and tradition. The entire balance of life in his mind was being thrown out. Two of his implacable enemies subjugated in a matter of months. These new people in the felt were obviously imbued with significant magical qualities besides their horses and guns. Then, just to rub it in, Retief wrote that he was going to deliver the stolen cattle but not the horses nor the guns. His own people would get those strategic weapons. Dingana was angered by that decision. Everything he thought belonged to him. He was the king. Who were these men to oppose him? Enraged, Dingana summoned his regular adviser, Alan Gardiner, the missionary, who was caught between the English traders and his attempts at proselytizing the Zulu. But Gardiner thought better and refused to go. Everyone was on edge. Messages of executions being planned had gone hither and thither, and Gardiner didn't want to be used as a pawn in this Boer-Zulu power game. Every tiny detail was ominous, for Dingana was already paranoid about his enemies. These updates were like a harbinger of death, a warning that his end was near and that he was trapped. Retief was in a rush to head back to Mgunglovu to hand over Dingana's cattle, but first he had to deal with his fractious compatriots. Gerrit Maritz had complained that Retief was acting too high-handedly and his plan to ride to meet Dingana with 200 burghers was turned down. The other food trekkers worried that their families would be exposed to an attack of such a large number of men were sent to Mgunglovu. Maritz was one of the leaders who believed the story that Dingana was planning to kill Retief. He realized the English traders had correct intelligence and tried to convince Retief to send the cattle but to remain behind. Retief was unmoved. He argued that a strong commander would force Dingana to stick to his somewhat loose promise to grant the Fortrekkers land. 
show him who's boss. But the pushback from the four trekkers was such that Retief decided instead to ask for volunteers to ride with him back to Dingana, and 69 burghers raised their hands along with 30 coloured achtereyes. All were now going to be armed with four liars. Thomas Halstead, the 26-year-old translator, was doomed to join. On the 25th of January, the trekkers gathered and prayed for protection, then a few days later, a party of 100 rode out with the cattle and the 15 Zulu attendants, including two Indunas. Pitratif wrote his last letter to his wife on this trail to Mgongulovu. I was deeply affected at the time of my departure. It was in no way that I feared for my undertaking to go to the king, but I was full of grief that I must again live through the unbearable dissension in our society, and that made me feel that God's kindness would turn to wrath. This narrative would be invoked over and over in the coming years of Afrikaner political discourse, that God was causing the folk pain because the folk were riven by dissent. I'll come back to that philosophy in later episodes. It's a central pattern of what ended up driving apartheid logic. As Retief journeyed, his folk seemed somewhat allayed, and then began to break up camp despite their earlier fears, with some deciding to take the road to Port Natal immediately. An eerie moment followed. On the 1st of February, news reached Erasmus Smit, the Prerekant, that two Amazulu men had called across the Bushman's River that all of Retief's party had died, murdered by Dingana. This was days before the murder took place, but already the commoners in Zululand appeared to know about this plan. The knowledge was spreading around what was in store. The traders knew because they had embedded spies at Mkungutlovu for years. Dingan did the same in turn. Everyone spied on everyone. And in the Zulu king's case, if a spy failed, he'd put his eyes out. So information tended to be quite accurate. There is an oral tradition narrative that Dingan had been seeking advice from the occult. From his ritual medicine, the Izingyanga appeared for him, a foaming, frothing mixture that he would stir in his royal Izibaya, and the royal ancestors would provide him some kind of magical alert. After this ritual, the king would wash himself with the same foaming mixture. The foam apparently convinced him to kill Retief. This ritual bathing did take place, but his decision was purely political. The traders relied on their spies, who generally had provided quite an accurate picture of things, thus their warning to Retief. It appears only the Boers did not have spies or a means of gathering intelligence from inside the Amazulu. They were relying on their own form of magic, their religion, to lead them to safety, to be their light, their path. Pray hard enough, and ye shall be delivered, etc., etc. Dingana's spies told him that Retief was approaching with a large group, 100 men. Previously, Retief had visited with only around 15, so this was a significant threat cantering towards his great place. Dingana had taken precautions. By the 2nd of February, thousands of Amabuto warriors had also arrived in ceremonial dress in anticipation of the Boers' arrival. These Amabutu were packed into the huts of the Isinthangoti, hidden away and waiting nearby, as I'll explain later. Retief and his men rode up to Mgungudlovu a day later on the morning of the 3rd of February, 1838, and decided to display their power before entering the great enclosure. The horsemen split into two groups, the horses dancing and frisky, the smells and sights unnerving the beasts. 
Then the Boers charged at each other in sham combat, firing their muskets loaded only with powder, no musket balls. Message delivered. The dirty white smoke that smelled of sulphur drifted across the open parade ground and a black film stuck on metal as this powder settled. Message received. Dingana's foreboding increased. None of the Amazulu had ever heard 100 muskets firing simultaneously. A thunderstorm brewed up by the wizards. Amabuta responded by gathering and committing to their own form of combat. Once these mock exchanges ended, the Boers asked Ngana for a place to camp and he pointed out the most prestigious quarters alongside the Izigodlo. Only royalty could camp here, inside his great place, and so close to the most famous and important place in Amazulu territory. Retief appeared unaware of the honour being paid to him, the Izigaba of a senior Ubuto, the most trusted warrior. They slept next to the Izigodlo, which was full of the all-important royal family and the women. So the Boers spurned this offer, thinking it would be dangerous sleeping inside the lion's den, and insisted on camping instead at a nearby clump of euphorbia trees between the main gate and the Mkumbani stream. Once they'd taken up their positions at the camp, food was sent, amasi, milk, uchwala and beer, and an ox which they could slaughter. Another great honour, visitors who were treated with courtesy. Again, there was a miscommunication, a disconnect, for the Boers slighted their hosts by riding off to hunt Rebok and Stienbok. They did not know that this was totally against Amazulu tradition, for the visitor was always well fed, and to hunt within sight of the royal homestead indicated that the king had not fed you well, and that was an insulting display. One mixed message after another. The shooting done, the Boers settled down directly on the ground known as the burial place of one of Dingan's ancestors. It was hallowed felt. No one was allowed to sit here. They were not allowed to kill an animal here. And most important, they were not even allowed to touch the ground with a stick because that was tantamount to stabbing the king. Missionary Francis Owen stood nearby, ashen-faced and growing more nervous by the second. He'd warned Retief over and over to stay away. And here was the Boer back with a large armed commando. At midday, Dingana sent a messenger to speak to Retief. He said that the king wanted the Boers to hand over their firearms and horses as a sign of good faith. Owen was somewhat stunned by Retief's response and his supercilious attitude to the respected messenger. Instead of explaining something at length, Retief merely held his grey hairs and bid him to tell his master that he was not dealing with a child. Remember how Sikunyela had called Dingana a pubescent boy? Now here was the Boer insulting the Zulu king. The messenger headed back into the great place. Revenge, as we all know, is a meal best served cold. So for the next two days, Dingana maintained what could be called a friendly, almost amiable public stance towards Retief and his men. The singing and dancing commenced and continued all the way through the Sabbath on the 4th of February, a day the Boers usually spent at prayer, but such was the importance of their mission, they spent it watching the dancing and listening to the singing instead. Owen had prepared a sermon for the Sabbath, and in his diary he wrote of regret that the Boers had not displayed their Christian piety, preferring to spend the time being entertained. It was also the day Retief handed Dingana a document to sign. And this document stated that, in return for the cattle he had delivered, the quest he had succeeded in concluding, the Zulu king should give the Futrekas land. That this document exists and was signed is hotly debated, 
But if you follow Zulu oral history and read Owen's diary, it clearly was marked. What we really do need to understand here is that Dingana was never going to hand over his land. He merely signed the document to lull Ratif into a false sense of security because it was after signing that the Boer leader was convinced to forget about his grey hair and agree to leave his firearms behind in one last visit to the Isigodlo. There is a desperate logic to all of this, as you're going to hear. And to this day, this document causes all manner of gnashing of teeth by those who say the Zulu agreed to hand over land versus those who say they didn't. We never found out who wrote this document, which was penned in English. And by the way, the original also has disappeared. But more about that in coming episodes. And this is what was written. I, Dingain, king of the Zulus, do hereby certify and declare that I thought it fit to resign unto him the said Retief and his countrymen, the place called Port Natal, together with all the land annexed, that is to say, from Tukela to the Umzumbubu, Umzumbubu river, westward, and from the sea to the north, as far as the land may be useful and in my possession which I did by this, and give unto them for their everlasting property. The land that may be useful to the north. What did this mean? That Dingana was capricious, everyone agrees. Even his prose poets, who imbued him with a dark sense of mystery, constantly referring to his deep waters. In Jonjol is a ziba zolwanli, deep one, like pools of the sea. This was a man who'd killed his half-brother in order to seize the throne after all, then killed off all other family members who could compete with him. This was a man who made his lovers abort his children. He was so paranoid about being bumped off. Like Richard III, he remains a divisive figure, but emulated by some modern politicians who appear devoted to his brand of paramilitary demagoguery. So, what happened next? Dingon was observed putting his mark on the deed of session, along with three others who were named as great councillors. These are thought of as the Ezinkeku, because they definitely were not the Andunas. And this has added to the weight of those who believe the document had been conveniently forged and discovered later. But Dingon had signed many treaties thus far. This was not an unusual event. He'd signed an agreement with Alan Gardiner, who had taken his land session document very seriously. And there was in Lela, his main Induna, and in Zorbo, his other main Induna, who had signed as witnesses for Dingan. Why did these men not sign this document? By using men who were not in any high-ranking position, Dingana, its thought was invalidating the agreement, deflating its value, and all the people around him observing this would have known those two had shouted across the Bushman's River at the Boers seemed to know in advance. Retief was a goner. Dingana was mollifying the Boers. Sign here, sign there, witness here. He has a pot of beer. Let's be friends. Everyone relaxes. The most dangerous moment in a negotiation, is it not? Furthermore, Dingana was giving away land he didn't even control. The area south of Durban to the Imzumvubu River, which neither he nor Shaka had ever managed to control. This was territory beyond his power. King Faku Kangongushi of the Amapondu ruled this river. It was he who had the river at the very center of his power, and here was Dingana idly signing away something he didn't own. Shaka had raided the river in 1824 and 1828. Both times, Faku's warriors had deflected their attacks, and you should remember that ill-fated war of the melons. 
Dingo and it was actually signing Pete Retief's death warrant. The Voortrekkers, however, viewed the document as a legal claim to the future Republic Natalia, a republic that the English were going to seize just to add insult to injury. I'll come back to the document later. For now, terrible deeds are imminent. After the signing on the Sunday, the day where the Boers missed Owen's church service, everyone relaxed. Dingana allowed them to wander around Mgungudlovu, and the trekkers were inquisitive. Some even approached the black Izugodlo, out of bounds, and the Amazulu men and women were whispering they must be Abatakati, wizards full of evil intent, walking around such hallowed turf. For the first time in many people's living memory, the gates of the black Izugodlo were slammed shut during the day, barring the Boers' entrance. Dingana's advisors were taking notes. This was another blatant dishonor, but of course Retief and his men did not know. They were acting as if they had every right to do whatever they wanted to do. They were lords of the land. God said so. They did not begin to want to consider the depths of the Amazulu cultural rules, both ancient and unconditional. On Sunday night, a violent thunderstorm hammered Mgungudlovu. Lightning killed twelve of the Boer horses. Later, some said this was an omen. On the morning of February 6th, 1838, the sun shone brightly, which it does after a powerful storm in South Africa. Owen was sitting under his wagon in the shade near Kwamatawani, reading his Bible. What he didn't know was what was going on below. Retief had demanded of Dingana that the Zulu king then hand back some of the cattle the Boers had brought, saying they were taken from the folk by Mzilikazi. Dingana was startled and said no. He reminded them once cattle arrived in Zululand, they never left, for they belonged to the king. Dingana had held an emergency meeting with his Nkantlu advisers to discuss next moves before the Boers arrived. It was time, they said, to eliminate the threat. Nzobu is credited with putting forward the suggestion that the Boers should be enticed to watch a display of dancing and then be killed. He wanted to avoid the danger posed by attacking them while they were armed and mounted. There would be terrible casualties amongst the Amabuto. Dingana summoned the Amabuta, and they were crammed in the huts out of the way, the eastern Tlangoti sections. Some were hidden in a nearby gully alongside Kwa Matawani. The Boers had already saddled up their horses when Dingana asked them to attend the final dance. Retief asked to be allowed to fire a final salvo of muskets, sans rounds. Dingana came to the conclusion that this meant the Boers were indeed going to execute him. What happened next is carefully documented in both oral history and by missionary Francis Owen. A messenger arrived from Dingana at Owen's side to say that he should take care but not worry for the Boers were going to be killed, but he was safe. Owen rushed to grab his telescope and fumbling with the mechanism aimed it at the hill of execution. And from there he was going to see groups of ten or so warriors, each dragging a Boer or one of the coloured achtereos to its summit. William Wood was present the 14-year-old, the son of a Port Natal carpenter and the child who'd been acting as an interpreter for Owen while the other interpreter, Hully, was away. The Boers were congratulating themselves on a job well done, but William Wood had sprinted up and shouted to Retief that he saw that Dingana's eyes were rolling. He was looking fierce, hateful. He was glowering. They were in immediate danger. Retief smiled at Wood. He was a child after all, what did he know, and said, we are sure the king's heart is right with us, and there is no cause for fear. So they piled their weapons outside the main gate and entered. Wood ran back to Owen. Dingana, according to oral tradition, and backed up by Tununu the Nduna, 
had put in Songana, the Nduna of Kwadukuza, Stanga, in front of the assembly to substitute for him, and had slunk behind. Msongana looked like Dingana, and the story goes that he was deploying a body double just in case his malevolent plan backfired. I'm not entirely certain the story is true, but many Zulu storytellers repeat it, and the Boers were never able to confirm it. Dingana, or his body double, asked the Boers to sit nearby and drink beer, then they'd receive a few head of cattle for the road to slaughter. As they sat, two groups of warriors were drawn up on either side, one the married veterans, on the other the newly formed Ilaba Ubuto, made up of men around 20 years old. They danced in a half-moon shape, dancing the customary Ikontlo, a high-energy dance that features a rhythmic forward and backward motion. As they danced, they sang, We have two, three Ikontlo dances. They wind about. They turn all over the place. We shall dance this way and not that way. Hi-ya-ya, hi-ya-ya and they moved closer and closer to the unsuspecting Boers, while out of sight hundreds more Amabuto gathered in the enclosure behind. Dingana had told his Nduna that the signal to attack would come after the second song, then he'd wave his hand over his shoulder. Fifteen minutes into the singing, the man who some say was Dingana, others Msongana, stood up and Retief asked where he was going. To pass water, he said, then waved over his shoulder and cried out, Seize them! With that, the Zulu king hurried away to his Izigodlo in fear just in case the Boers overcame his Amabuto. Or perhaps it was Msongana, but that's not really important. The Amabuto rushed forward and seized the Boers who were still sitting. Some of Retief's men still had long-bladed knives and pulled these out. Dust rose as they fought their assailants, slashing twenty warriors dead before they were overcome. Some of the Boers were immediately beaten unconscious. Others had their necks broken. Most were alive when they were dragged to Kwa Matawani watched by the shocked Owen staring down his telescope. As they were dragged away, Dingana made a reappearance outside his Isigodlo and shouted, Bulalani Abatayati! Kill the wizards! We believe this was not his body double. Retief died last. He was forced to watch as all his men were killed, as well as his son, and among the Boers were a few boys of eleven years or younger, each clubbed to death. Outside the main gate, an old Achtereya called Lamana, a Khoisan man who'd been guarding the muskets, managed to leap on his horse and ride away to safety. He was the only survivor of this massacre. Thomas Halstead, the Natal lad, the translator, died alongside the Boers. Later, Dingana would say he regretted this because Halstead's death was going to cause him grief with the Durban traders. Then Dingana ordered Pitretief's heart and liver to be cut out of his body and placed on the path back to the Trekkers' encampments as strong muti against them should they seek revenge. The Amazulu army was ordered forward. Dingana briefed them about the upcoming mission. They should all set out immediately and kill the foot trekkers on the foothills and along the rivers below the Drakensberg. The prospects were now dire for these trekkers encamped here, and for most they would be caught unawares despite the months of warning. Back at Mgunglovu, Owen kept up his telescope vigil, and about noon on the 6th of February, watched thousands of Amabuta warriors march off. Thousands more left on the 8th of February, all heading west. Vienna, the place of weeping, was going to earn its name soon. What happened next is for next episode. And we'll also be hearing about what was going on with the freed slaves of the Cape, who had spent four years learning new artisanal skills and were supposed to be fully freed around now. Not so fast, some of their former masters were saying. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility. Don't forget, head off to the website desmondlatham.blog 
if you want to contact me, or through X at Des Latham. Until next, Tootsies.